Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. We're going to talk about the movies we watched this week, and at the end, we're going to crown the baddest and raddest dad of them all. And to us, dad is an energy, not a gender. So let's get right into it. Um, It's been a wild week for us. Yeah. We very suddenly decided we were going to sell our house, and we did, Mm -hmm. in the span of one week. So our movie watching has been a little chaotic, and it'll be an interesting ride when we explain some of the places and ways that we watched movies this week but we still want managed to watch five of them i think we're a couple of silly geese just in that we decided that we were going to sell our house and buy a new house and buy a new house and start a podcast all within the same time frame yep yep but i guess that's just what we do that is what we do so we still watched five movies this week despite the stress and chaos of the process of selling our house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it started last Sunday. So last Sunday, you know, on the heels of seeing the Batman, it was my time to pick a movie. It was my mystery movie pick. And I chose Little Miss Sunshine, a movie that we'd both seen before. It came out in 2006, directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, and written by Michael Arndt. <laughs> Maybe. So, so, sounds, <laughs> sounds right to right. me. Um, and just like a rock star cast before some of them were even, like, I think, recognized as well as they are now. So Steve Carell, Tony Collette, Greg Kinnear, Abigail Breslin, Paul Dano, that's why this was on my mind after seeing him as the Riddler, Alan Arkin, um, kind of the main cast there, even little Kamskis from uh, the MIT admissions woman from Spider-Man, <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> No Way Home. Um, so that's the movie that I picked this week. Uh, what'd you think of it? I I think I've only seen this movie once before watching it again this week. And I remember really liking it. I think at the time it was regarded as like one of the best and hottest indie movies when it first came out. And I didn't really get a chance to like, I didn't see it in the theater and I didn't catch it till it came out on DVD. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember really liking it and thinking it was great. And, you know, even like you said before, more of the cast was more well known 
like, I think we looked it up and this got released, I think, the same year that the American Office started. I think it came out the year after, but it was probably being filmed around the time that the... So, like, still Steve Carell in kind of the infancy of his powers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really liked it then, and I, I think I liked it even more now. And something I wanted to speak to is just, like, I feel like it hits a lot harder now that I'm older. Mm. Like, I feel like the very adult things it's dealing with, such as careers and having home, having responsibilities, just resonates a lot more because i think when i saw it i was more the same age as paul dano's character Mm -hmm. so i related more to the angsty teenager than necessarily the tony collect greg kinnear steve carell characters yeah to that point i mean it's paul dano's performance that i remember from the movie so i actually saw it um a little bit hipper than you i saw it at the princess theater which is one of the kind of two more independent theaters in our in our city and it was one of the things that sold me on like go see movies at these theaters and not necessarily the big ones, the big theaters. Um, and I remember if you know, you know, that particular scene with Paul Dano just gutting. Yes. Uh, it still is. But this time around, I think something that really resonated with me is this idea of like, when do you hang up your dreams? Yeah. And like, when, when should you and what's the balance? And when you have other responsibilities, is it fair to keep chasing your dreams? your dreams aren't realistic do you keep chasing them and i think that's reflected both in abigail breslin's story uh with the little little adorable olive um and then also greg kinnear the father richard i think that they kind of have these twinned stories of like what does it mean to chase a dream even when that dream isn't realistic yeah and the thing i always remembered about little miss sunshine and i still think is probably one of my favorite totally obliterating scenes in any movie that I've I saw it was this one particular scene with Paul Dano and it's it's exactly that and it's it's grappling with that and he grapples with it for the rest of the movie and his delivery in throughout the whole movie Paul Dano's great mm-hmm. I'm I'm just like when you picked it I was just like yes I'm ready to see more Paul Dano <laughs> mm-hmm. especially after the Batman um but yeah I was gonna say too like while I feel like I relate more with some of the adults and the things that they're going through I still feel that I have the same sort of cynical outlook on the world as Paul Dano's character does in this movie. But I think Steve Carell's character does too. And like, yeah, yeah, he yeah. plays it with such, he plays that character. Um, the character's name is Frank with such quiet sadness. Like there's a subtlety to his sadness that I think it'd be easy to miss out on if you're not carefully watching the movie, if you're like kind of distracted and talking through it, which some people do we'll talk about that later. Um, I remember really liking his performance then and really liking it now. I think one of my favorite things rewatching is being like, I'm such a Tony Collette stan now. And I wasn't necessarily then. I don't think I knew who she was, although I loved About a Boy. And we recently rewatched it. You're just like, yeah, she's the mom from The Sixth Sense and About a Boy. Yeah. She's like the ultimate mom dad. Yeah. Like she's the raddest dad who plays a single mom or like the more uh, responsible mom in a couple. Mm. Well, maybe not in hereditary, <laughs> yeah, <gonna> but <laughs> <laughs> maybe not the most responsible of the couple in hereditary. But uh, she's so great in everything she's in, and rewatching this still so great in this. I love this cast; like it, it's it's so good. Everybody comes to play, even like Alan Arkin, who is arguably like the most dislikable character, actually like adds a lot of levity to the to the movie that I like. Um, 
And Ab- Abigail Breslin is just like a little cutie pie. So cute. And this, I wasn't sure like rewatching it if it would land in the same way or if it would have aged well because I haven't seen it in a long, long time. But I do think it balances really well like the the uh, humor and sometimes absurdist humor, maybe not absurdist, but the sometimes like drier or darker humor with like some really heavy feels, like both beautiful and sad and heavy does a really good job of balancing those things, I think. It's kind of my favorite genre when it's done right. It's like the dramedy. Mm-hmm. Like when you can have some jokes, a lot of which in this movie still land. Yeah. Today. I was laughing. Yeah. But it has, yeah, like you said, this kind of emotional heft that it just it just sits in your gut and in your heart and gives you all the feels. And I don't I don't know about you, but rewatching this I didn't remember all the beats, but then as the beats started approaching, like particularly iconic funny moments or like surprising moments or like, you know, that Paul Dano scene, which I did remember really well, I'd be like, oh, this is what's coming up. And then I enjoyed it in my anticipation of it and and experiencing it again. And sometimes when I've seen a movie before, the jokes get old or the heavy bits feel less heavy. And granted, I don't watch this movie all the time, but I... They, they landed again for me. So how did this movie make you feel? Revisiting it all these years later, I think that it made me feel like an adult version of Paul Dano's character. Mm. It made me feel that, you know, as an adult now, yes, I, I, I have to take on more responsibilities. I have to think about more people than just myself. Um, but this world is a really hard place to live in. So... Um, all while that that sounds really, you know, like a bummer, but there is also this levity and this hopefulness that exists in it as well. So it made me it made me feel that while also feeling <laughs> that kind of sense of dread and despair. Yeah, like the world is hard, but if someone puts their head on your shoulder, it makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's head into the next film, which was my mystery movie pick. This was a. This is a movie that's probably some horror fans would say it's sinful that we hadn't seen this for the first time until this week. I mean, I think it's sinful that we hadn't seen this until this week. Yeah. Um, We watched Night of the Living Dead, the original one from 1968. Uh, It starred Dwayne Jones, Judith O'Day, Judith Ridley, and Carl Hardman. And it was directed by the zombie master himself, George A. Romero. And it was written by George Romero and John Russo. I thought, you know, (laughs) I thought it lived up to the hype, even though movies kind of made during this kind of era, like 50s, 60s, have a certain kind of vibe to them that, you know, when you're watching this on a weeknight, (laughs) it can kind of... The week that you're making a big life decision, yes. Yeah, it, it could kind of, you know, hit a couple of valleys, we'll say. But before I go any further into that, what did you think of this one? Um, I was really excited to watch it because we've been meaning to watch it independently and together forever. I really liked it and I'm really glad I've seen it and I know I want to watch it again. Mm-hmm. It suffers from what like I'm going to call or suffers from me from what I'm going to call the Twin Peaks phenomena, which is like watching something that was the first of its kind after you've seen all the things that it's influenced. Mm-hmm. It can feel derivative because things have become variations of it and you haven't seen the original 
Yeah, it's hard to train your brain to like put it back into like imagine being in 1968 and yeah. seeing this in the for theater the for the first time. time and you're and it's unlike anything you've ever seen before. And I mean, we drank the zombie Kool-Aid hard when like the zombie media was proliferating everywhere. We were reading the Walking Dead comics, we were watching the Walking Dead show. Still love 28 days later. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw we saw all of them and liked them and then got zombie burnout hard. Yeah. And like eventually we're like, we're not going to continue watching The Walking Dead. We never finished reading the comics. Weren't immediately rushing out to see a new movie if it was a zombie movie. And so going back and watching this one, while like knowing it's an iconic piece of horror media or just film in general, but also having seen all the things that have come since, it was like this interesting balancing act that like I'm excited to revisit at a time where I know the pacing of it and I know... um I can kind of just set that aside because I've now already seen it once and just enjoy it. That's a totally fair point. Um, and, you know, I'll say like something that I thought was really effective because this was, you know, this wasn't one of the bigger productions of the time. Like this is a very small indie effort. Like I don't even think there was production logos at the at the top of this movie. I think it just jumped right into opening credits. Yeah, I read, sorry to interrupt, but nope. I read this, fascinating detail um in my my uh, always post movie research um that i never told you about which is that when it originally played in theaters the they didn't have the copyright logo on it and so there was like a bunch of issues with it and copyright and it was like um i'm not gonna get this correct because the information is not right in front of me but something about how it was like in the public domain for like a hot second because they didn't actually have the right stuff (laughs) (laughs) which like I don't think it's still in the public domain. If like somebody knows that, let us like know. The, like the film itself? Yeah, like it, it was uncopyrighted for like, because of a mistake that was made. So you know how you can like... Because some graphic designer forgot to put a little C at the like, end pretty, of the name. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It was something like that. I, I wish I had the real story there, but I remember being like, that's bonkers. That is wild. Oh man, I love that. But because it was such a low budget indie movie... um they made use of sets and making it feel mm. very small and contained, mm-hmm. which it was, it was just so effective. And then also iconic. Cause that just leads, that gets you to evil dead cabin in the woods. Panic, Panic room. room. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it's such an effective use of suspense yeah. and, and horror and like raising the stakes. It, I don't know. I'm just a sucker for if you have a limited cast in one location yeah. doing one thing and in this case it's just trying to survive a yeah. horde of zombies i just think it's so effective and it just it just sucks me right in i love it yeah i love a like the term i use with my students is closed circuit where like nobody can get out like they're they're trapped in a space hmm. um i love it like I, I haven't seen phone booth since i first saw phone booth, but i remember really liking I loved phone it booth. Too. yeah um maybe worth revisiting with like colin farrell being pretty um hot right now yeah the other thing that was super cool about this movie it came out in 1968 but the the lead in it is actually a person of color mm-hmm. like our hero is a black man and seeing him operate in a way that he is you know taking control and assigning himself as the leader of this group of all white folks and he's making the decisions he's taking the risks he's putting himself on the line to protect what they have which pretty revolutionary for a 1968 and he's uh, film he's the one that's 
presented to the viewer as having the correct moral code. Yeah. Like he's the one that like when we are mad at everybody else, we're aligned with him. Now, my understanding is that he wasn't written to be played by a black man, mm-hmm. um, which maybe is the revolution in this. Like, isn't it um, in Alien, like Ripley wasn't written as a woman? That role was originally written as a male character. Am I wrong about that? I don't know. Let's roll with it and say that that's it. Sure. So if if it is, the <laughs> parallel I'm trying to draw here is that if that role of, of Ben is not originally written for a black man in 1968, but is written for what is assumed to be a white man in 1968, and then is cast because Dwayne Jones crushes it and like is right for the role, but they maintain all of what they originally planned, there's like an accident dental radicalness to this or a like when we saw like perhaps all the people involved in the film say well we're not going to change it and there's a radicalness to that that is almost more fascinating to me than if it had been intentionally written that way yeah if you just like slap i don't i don't know who's out at the time charlton heston i don't know <laughs> i have no idea <laughs> we're not really hip on our uh 1968 movies but you just slap like run-of-the-mill white guy in that movie immediately becomes less effective, I think. I think it still would have been a good movie, but there's something about what we can now read into, like, a socio-political reading, whether it was intended by the filmmakers or not, it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, it just adds another layer to the iconicness of this film. Now, what was difficult for me is, as someone who loves horror, I knew much of some of the really surprising and socio-political things involved in this prior to watching yeah i was gonna say that too you and i watched a series called eli ross history of horror and it's it's a great series it's so good it was on amc and it's essentially each episode is themed to different genres of horror movies and then they just kind of break down and highlight and talk to the cast and crew of some of the most iconic horror movies in those in those subgenres. um and this was one of the movies that we saw and then talked about so like kind of the the biggest moments and the biggest twists and surprises we already knew going including in including like fully seeing the ending if you can go in unspoiled for a 1968 movie try to keep it that way because the the ending the ending to this movie is very strong mm-hmm. and very impactful and even knowing it it still was really strong i just couldn't help but be like i couldn't help but wish that i was seeing it in 1968 yeah or seeing it like as a teen who is just coming into my own understanding of like the world and and what I believe it means to like live as a human being in this world and acknowledge like difficult things about how humans operate and have um, and like coming into what social justice is like as a teen and it would have been so cool to see this for the first time and have that be something that like added to my understanding doesn't make it any less powerful to watch it now I just wish I could have watched it then. I agree. 100%. Something else I want to talk about is like when it gets into the like gore. Yeah. It's actually pretty great. Like for 1968, there were some things that I was like, oh, gross. <laughs> like, I mean, you can imagine what happens with zombies, although they never call them zombies. You can imagine what happens with the living dead. And you can imagine that in 1968, it might not have looked good. <laughs> it looks pretty good. That's the thing, though, is like we have we have a few people in our lives that, you know, they've they've made horror movies in the past. Mm-hmm. And there's just something there's something so charming and just so 
in innovative and creative about the way that people on these lower budget movies are able to use that creativity to come up with some of the grossest gore that you can that you can think of and it's better than any cgi bullshit that's in like mainstream horror movies now you know like when it when it comes back to it and we're gonna i'm gonna talk about this a little bit more in the next movie that we're gonna talk about Mm -hmm. um when you go practical it's just and and it looks good there's nothing better that just sells the movie and puts it in sets into reality you know and i love it when a horror movie from 1968 is able to able to do that you know like it took a minute to get there but when it happened i was like you went there yeah and i'm meeting you there and i'm here for it yeah appreciated it it was it was really cool to see and makes me excited to like i really have i haven't seen the original dawn of the dead either although i have also seen many clips from it um so i'm excited to watch that now too overall how this movie make you feel okay so if i'm being honest you know we watched it what tuesday night mm-hmm heavy week for not heavy but like stressful week for us at first i was a little bored and i think at a different time i wouldn't have been but once it got there like once once we really were in the closed circuit and everyone was there um i was pretty here for it and then when it all ended i felt like kind of i think it just made me feel like an appreciation for film that like I don't know that this particular viewing of it, I got everything out of it that I I will in subsequent viewings just because of where my state of mind was and my attention span was on that particular day. But I left with just like a great appreciation for the history of horror films and where they are now and the connections that like the path that horror has taken along the way. And I'm really excited to watch it again. Like I will watch it many times over, I think. Yeah. It's like you said, there's something very special about that Twin Peaks effect where you see something that started a long line of things like it and was the kind of, you know, the great grandfather of all of this thing. Mm -hmm. Or the father? I don't know. Somewhere in the family tree at the top. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was, it left me with just an appreciation for the history of horror filmmaking that I'm excited to return to at some point. I agree. So I'm really excited to talk about this next one, which is another one that we've been talking about and meaning to watch both independently and together for as long as I can remember, which is the 1986 version of The Fly, directed by Canadian body horror sweetheart David Cronenberg, written for this particular film by David Cronenberg and also Charles Edward Pogue, um, based on a short story, apparently, and starring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. And, yeah, I just... I've been meaning to watch it forever, and I genuinely just felt like watching something gross. Mm-hmm. That's why I picked it. I'm like, it's it's got a good runtime. I think people are probably already picking up that I like a short runtime, if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first questions I always ask you when you pick a movie is, how long is it? Yeah. I have to be prepared for a long run time. So it's got a nice, tight run time of an hour and 36 minutes. It was on Disney Plus, so we had access to it. And I was just like, I think it's gross, and I'm I want to watch something gross tonight. So I know that you'd been wanting to watch it forever, too. It didn't surprise us, didn't surprise you with what it was, because it says David Cronenberg, The Fly, <laughs> before, <laughs> before you see anything else. So you immediately knew what it was, but 
Uh, what was your reaction to finding out what I'd picked and and what did you think of it? I was immediately stoked. I like you said, I've been wanting to watch this movie for so long and I think the another shameful truth is that we haven't watched many if any of the body horror films that David Cronin Cronenberg no. has made. I've I've seen M Butterfly for a class, which is his when we flipped through his uh his little like icon on Apple. It was like his only rotten film. I'm like, wow, that's the one I've seen. And then like a couple of his like Vigo Mortensen newer films. But like as Canadians who love horror and also really like body horror, shameful. Yes. Of us. Shame. Um, but I'm glad that this was the first one that we saw because I, I would say this is probably one of his more well-known ones. And I loved it. I thought it was so good. Um I was really stoked on it. I thought that, um, again, very Babely movie. Like, yeah, 1980s Babely. Yeah. Like, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis were turning some looks in this. There's, it, a, there's a scene, spoiler free, but there's a scene where she gives him an item, and it may be one of the sexiest scenes I've ever seen in cinema. <laughs> and she's just yes. giving him an item. Yes. Watch out for it if you've never seen The Fly, and if you have, I think you know what I mean. <laughs> Um, something that I, I thought as, as the movie was going on is it looks so good. Yeah. Like overall, just the cinematography is really great. But when it came to the gore, again, Cronenberg goes with practical effects, mm-hmm. which just like, immediately roots it in reality and they still look so good. Yeah. They're so effective and visceral. There's a couple, I mean... You can look at the synopsis and it'll probably say this in here, but there, there's a couple of teleportation effects that are a little wonky donkey, but um, overall, like really great practical effects. Yeah. And this was another one that we had, um, I think, seen on Eli Roth's History of Horror. Mm-hmm. And so I was a little worried that like coming, I mean, maybe that's even why it was like in my mind. I'm not sure. And so there were like, we'd seen versions of, a character kind of later into the film and kind of knew what he was going to look like, but we had not seen all of it. Like I thought maybe we had, we had not. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, there was some genuinely surprising, disgusting, disgustingly great moments of body horror that I'm like, yeah, there's a reason, I guess, why David Cronenberg has the reputation he does. And I can't, like, I'm just so excited now to go watch some of his other films. Like, just so great. And, like, made me squirm and cover my eyes. <laughs> and um, and then also be, like, really excited that I saw it. Because I wanted something gross and I think I delivered. Yeah. Or Cronenberg delivered and I presented it to you. <laughs> Beautifully. Thank you. Yeah. Um. Yeah, how did this, how did this movie make you feel? uh made me feel gross yeah but in the best way yeah um it made me feel very happy that i finally got to see it and that like you said it's kind of now it's brought us into this world of body horror by david cronenberg and i'm i'm very much looking forward to seeing what we are going to watch next from his catalog of gross out body horror movies i'm just always here for gina davis like i just have to quickly mention there's like a a really important kind of subplot that takes place as we get closer to the end of the film with Gina Davis that situates the like horror of like 
a body that is capable of doing particular things. And I think it's really astounding for 1986. Mm -hmm. And there were some moments with her character that just, aside from this being a gross movie, aside from it being like really captivating, like there's also some really resonant things socially in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will be watching this movie again. Well, I'm glad it made you feel gross because that's what I wanted and uh, so happy for us. Oh, me too. All right. The next movie, um, it wasn't a mystery movie pick. Uh, we decided to watch this one together. Turning Red came out this week, the new movie from Disney and Pixar. Uh, so it came out in 2022. It uh, is starring Rosalie Chiang and Sandra Oh. It was directed by Domi Shi. And it was also written by Domi Shi as well as Julia Cho and Sarah Stryker. Yeah, this um, this movie was pretty. This movie was fun. I enjoyed it. I thought it. I thought it had. I thought it had really great things to say, and I thought it had some really nice, fresh things to say. Mm-hmm. To say, and I'm really liking the trajectory of animated movies, especially from Pixar and and Disney. Actually, like Encanto was kind of doing this too, but I just love the stories that they're wanting to tell and the characters they're wanting to um, bring into the fold and expose people to um, both just from a character standpoint, but also, also culturally. But what do you think of the film? So I'm going to preface this with being like, we watch this in a way that is so atypical of how we watch movies. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, So in our selling our house journey, we had to be out of our house all day, Friday, all day, Saturday, and most of the day today, which is Sunday um, not only that, but our realtor we were working with wanted us to have no evidence that we have a cat, which is a difficult thing for two people who are... Who have a cat. <laughs> we don't just have a cat. Our cat is our life. Yeah. He's, uh, he's here right now. Yeah, he's... he's co- little, little sweetie, all curled up here, having a snooze. So we, you know, <laughs> he has three cat trees. He's spoiled. I know uh, one of your friends once said, what is this Disneyland <laughs> Like for him? <laughs> um, we had to hide those, had to put his food away. Uh, couldn't really change the fact that there's cat artwork in much of our house. Um, but we also had to take him with us. He hates the car. We were driving half an hour to go stay at my mom's house. And he's a Siamese, so it's just yowling. It's not oh, even meowing. It is painful. He sounds like he's dying. Um, and then while at my mom's house, she has a cat and cats don't mix. So we are alternating locking our cat away and letting her cat out for a bit and then switching. Her cat was like pretty, pretty chill. But when the odd moment where like they'd end up in the same space, uh, Thompson, our cat would be hissing and growling and poofing up everywhere. Um, so, that, I mean, that's besides the point, but we're at my mom's house and we are watching a movie on her, like, pretty small TV, which is above a fireplace. And I'm kind of finicky about, like, not liking to look up at movies mm-hmm. or, like, up at the TV. Um, While well, she's, like, talking on the phone in her bedroom. And, you know, we, we've got a lot on our minds, too. So we're, we're watching it there. Uh, and then she kind of joined about, like, 20 minutes into the movie. And so then we were also watching it with another person. And... It was just like a little bit of a wonky film watch in terms of it wasn't super streamlined. Usually we just kind of like get engrossed in the movie. So all of that being said, I did really enjoy it. It was a little bit more cartoony than like I like my kids films. Like I don't really like Up. 
because I find this stuff with like the kid and the dog really cartoonish. Yeah, like something that I kind of was thinking as we were watching it is that while it is gorgeous and I mean, Pixar are amazing in what they do, it seemed like overall they were less focused on realism. Like mm-hmm. it felt more cloudy with a chance of meatballs oh, yeah, that's instead a good of like Encanto or Toy Story 4, which are going for like, look at what we can build in a computer. Doesn't this look like real life? Like it felt, it felt, a, it felt a lot more cartoony. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like I, I think the thing that I most take away from this is like, I'm so grateful that this is the movie that like our two quite little nieces are gonna, like we have a, we have three nieces. We have a 10 year old niece, a three-year-old niece and I like few months old niece um and the really little ones like this is a movie they're gonna get to grow up watching and it is so focused on like emotional complexity and like the importance of friendship and like you know how to talk about your feelings and like that that is such a far cry from like the little mermaid and snow white and the (laughs) movies we grew up on right like so while it may not like have hit as hard as some animated films do for me as an adult, I did really enjoy it. And I'm really, I think if I had been a kid, I would have like, I would have loved it. Um, and then it would continue to resonate with me as an adult because I loved it so much when I was a kid. So I'm like so excited about it. Yeah. Like I think that what really worked for me was just because this was written and directed by all ladies you mentioned this when we were watching it. It just feels like they nailed what 13-year-old girls are like. Yeah, I've been a 13-year-old girl, and I was like, everything embarrassing about this is very accurate to me, to my past, mm-hmm. I will say, um, which made me laugh a lot. And I'll, like, because I'm past that now, I'm able to look back and like have a lot of fondness and like kindness for those those girls in the film. And I thought that was done so, so well. Yeah. Like Domi Shi, um, when I was just looking things up, and I didn't realize this, that she also wrote and directed that Pixar short, Bao. Yeah, I saw that. I didn't realize it when we were watching it, but I did see it later. And and mm. that's a really great short film. Yeah, it's great. And I was looking at it like she's been at Pixar for a while, just mm. kind of like playing um, less significant roles on movies and shorts over time. But yeah, when I saw that, I'm like, okay, I get that. Like, she's really great, and the and the writers on this film are really great with just the characterization of everybody, and they everyone has their unique personalities, and they make sure that you know what those personalities are as you're going through the movie, and they all complement each other. And the way you know it, it has the heart of a Pixar movie. Mm-hmm. Like Pixar knows its formula; it knows what works. It has you know by bringing in new talent behind the making of these movies, they're you know. They're taking the narratives in different directions and the characters in different directions. But at its core, you know that you're going to feel some things, which is it's what they're best at. Also, when it was funny, it was really funny. Oh, yeah. There are some great laughs in this. Like, it, yeah, I, 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 I laughed a lot. Uh, it's not one I see myself revisiting often. Mm-hmm. Um, although, like, if our nieces wanted to rewatch it with us, I'd be like, yeah, let's do it. Um so I, I I I did really like it, and the the can Canada of it all, yeah, is is fun to watch. Even though I I've never been to Toronto, I don't think you have either. Have you? Just at the airport, where yeah, I was accused yeah. of stealing a meal. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> the story for, story, story for, for another, another time. time. Yeah. Um. But there's something about seeing Pixar animated Loonies and Toonies on the screen. <laughs> and that, five dollar bills. Yeah, that just like kind of as a Canadian, just like hits you right in the heart and just makes you feel seen. Yeah, and hearing <laughs> Took. 
love hearing the word toque. I <laughs> wear a toque every day pretty much. And I love, love my toques. Um, the Canada of it all was fun. I mean, I feel like it's hard not to. And, and Sandra Oh is such a Canadian treasure. Mm, yes. Um, love her. So, yeah, it was, it was not my favorite animated film I've ever seen, but I really liked it a lot. How did it make you feel? <laughs> it made me feel um, happy. It made me feel happy. Like, it, it was really funny. It had a lot of heart. Um, and, the, and the funniness was so tied to, like, an accurate animated version of a time I've been through in my junior high years. And I, was, I felt really elated to see that accurately depicted on screen that's so cool and like it's it's cool that younger girls will be able to see it and just younger people will be able to see it and hopefully be able to relate to that as well and see themselves in these things and that's like like i said i revel in the hopefulness of these animated movies that are coming out and the cultures they want to explore and the stories that they want to tell i just i think it's such a it's such a great and needed shift because i mean how many times are you gonna show us the cinderella or the snow white or the sleeping beauty story and i didn't i mean and no disrespect to people who love those movies but like they did not resonate with me as a kid like i didn't like the little mermaid i didn't like i thought cinderella was boring i thought snow white was boring i i don't even know if i saw sleeping beauty i liked the lion king i really liked mulan i liked aladdin but like yeah, I don't know. I, I I have enjoyed each Pixar and Disney film that has come out in the last decade for particularly its emotional resonance and the positive things I see it presenting to young kids. Absolutely. Okay, our last film of the week was also not a mystery movie pick. It was one that we went and saw in the theater and I really wanted to see this one. I think you did too, Elliot, but I think I maybe brought it to your attention. And, you know, we had a lot of trouble deciding when we were going to see this one because it's not had a wide release that we've noticed. And our favorite movie theater in our um, city, Metro Cinema, was playing it this weekend. And it it was the last day that it was last weekend it was going to be playing. So we went to see it. Uh, We went to see The Worst Person in the World. Um, That's the English title. So this movie was directed by... Let me get it right. Joachim Tria, who also wrote it with Eskil Voigt. Um, and it's starring Renate Reinsva, who won the Cannes Best Actress. Yeah. And while I haven't seen all of the other films, I think deservedly. And also starring Anders Danielson Lee and Herbert Nordrum. So just like initial thoughts on like what you knew about the movie and then what you thought of it. Before I get into that, I want you to tell the very ironic story of going to see the worst person in the world and having some of the worst audience members in the world. Yeah, I'm just going to, I feel like all I'm doing lately is complaining about going to movie theaters, even though it's like my favorite thing to do. I just will never understand people who go to a movie and talk. Mm. Like, and I'm not talking talk like, oh, I, you know, our our brother-in-law actually really enjoy watching movies with because he kind of like when it's funny he'll repeat what was just said (laughs) and like that makes me laugh more um and quietly Mm -hmm. but like go and like have a full-on conversation like just the news is on in the background in your living room like so we 
we have at Metro Cinema, we have this like spot that we, uh, if we can get it, it's our favorite spot um, on the balcony. And we were there so excited to get our favorite spot. We also got parking, which is like, uh, if you can get parking there. Oof. I think there's two parking spots. And if you can snag one, it's great. If you don't, you're in for a walk. Yeah. And so we, you know, we were riding high. We got our parking. We got our favorite spot. We got there at a good time. Um because we didn't know how long we were going to have to be at my mom's that day. Like, everything was kind of working for us. And then these two people were talking through the whole movie. And, like, talking consistently through the whole movie. Um, and this is an international film. It's subtitled. And it's a quiet film. And all I can hear is, like, shh, 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 shh. <laughs> Like, in the background. And, um, and then you were even getting frustrated. And whenever that happens in a movie, I'm just, like, not really sure what to do. And I'm I'm getting more and more angry because I find like, why would you pay money to come see a movie and then just talk through it? Like, there's no way you're able to watch the movie while you're having this like full on conversation with no pauses. Well, then, there, and you also just feel like you paid money to come here and interrupt my movie going experience. Like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And if like, if something has come up in your life that you need to talk about, like, maybe we leave the theater. A coffee shop, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, there's one right across the street. One right next door. <laughs> Your car, the sidewalk. I was having like for about half the movie, I would say I was having a really hard time focusing because of the worst people in the world behind us. And so we eventually decided we were just going to move spots. And I, I love this because <laughs> we're just like, OK, we're just going to relocate, get away from this. Fine. So I I'm walking ahead of you and I go down the stairs and I turn around and you're not there <laughs> and I look up and. And I just see you having some words with these <laughs> with these people. And I'm just like, oh, damn, she's giving it to them. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I said some words. But I thought I thought what you said and how you went about it was it, it wasn't over the top. And it was just honest. And well, what did you say? What did you say? I said, I mean, I, I don't know verbatim because like I was not planning to say something. But then I was like, I just I said something. It just happened. Yeah. So. I, I said something to the effect of, I just want to let you know that we have been able to hear you talking this whole time from over there, and we're going to move seats now because it's so distracting, and I find it disrespectful. Oh, man. And that... then they said sorry, and I just said okay, and we and we went and found new spots. Man, that's the, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed, <laughs> but you were both mad and disappointed. I was mad and disappointed, and... I do think it impacted like my viewing of this movie pretty significantly, which is really disappointing. We were also tired. It was late at night. It was a long movie and it was a quiet, slow burn movie. Um, so I don't know. Like, I, I think I need to see this one again. Yeah. Thanks for letting, <laughs> thanks for letting <laughs> us recount that story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, I want to, I want to watch this again, probably in the comfort of our own home, yeah. <laughs> home just to, you know, make double sure that there's no interruptions. But I was surprised by this movie because for some reason I had it in my head that this was just going to be like a, a wacky comedy, like just based off the title and some of the um, trailers that I've seen. But this was this was a quiet, contemplative movie. Contemplative is a really good word to describe it. Yeah, like I like that. Like it just it just made you think and it drew you in through that use of, you know, being so quiet and the act, the acting was so engaging, and it felt it felt very real. It felt relatable. The title makes the the title made me think one thing about 
who our main character was, but you know, it, it kind of starts taking its own twists and turns as you're watching the movie. I think that, um, Renate, uh, Reinsva, who won best actress at Cannes, like totally deserved it. Mm. It was just, it was an absolutely beautiful performance that she gave and all of the supporting characters around her went in places that I wasn't expecting them to go and supported her and her character's story in ways I was not expecting. I think it just would have hit me a lot harder had it not been for the unfortunate audience situation. Um, And I think like, I think we were both a little tired for this movie, but we just felt like if we didn't see it tonight, we, when were we going to get to see it? Yeah. And maybe wasn't the best choice, but you know, when you got to watch movies, you got to watch movies. Yeah. The other things that I thought were really great. um, I thought the cinematography was great. Like Mm -hmm. the cinematography was, if this probably won't make sense, but it makes sense in my brain. It's just the cinematography felt as quiet as the, the overall yeah. vibe of the movie. Like it is, it, it felt intimate. It felt very personal. They did some really great things, just framing scenes. I thought it was gorgeous. And the other thing that was gorgeous was the music. Yeah. I was all in for like both the soundtrack and the score. Yeah. Like really lovely. Like I'm not as drawn to, um, adding a a movie soundtrack or like a movie score to my um like my my music what i don't even know what we use apple yeah what do you call it just apple music apple music wow (laughs) not a sponsor (laughs) no i can't even remember the name and it's so simple um because you've been listening to the drive my car score like consistently since we went and saw that which at some point i would love to talk about that movie because it floored me and was phenomenal but um, yeah, the the score and the soundtrack in this is really, really lovely. Um, something I'll say about this one though is, I feel like for particular people, this would be a really, um, a really great, like a mir- mirror's not the right word, like a film that allows them to see themselves and feel heard. And it isn't me. Like this is really about like figuring out who you are through your like. 30s particularly when it comes to like partnership and like (laughs) the story I like to tell is that I did not plan to get into a long-term relationship when I was 19 years old like I was like I'm gonna be single for a long time I'm so excited and then that's not what happened (laughs) you you gotcha (laughs) you walked into my life with a text message and the rest is history um so there's a part of this film that like isn't speaking to me like on purpose, like this film isn't, I don't know that it is for me in terms of what I think I've, I've read. Um, a lot of the people I follow on Letterboxd felt like really seen by this movie. And I think it gave me in, in a window into like what my life could have been. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess there's still time if you like ditch me right now in my early 30s. <laughs> I, can, I could try and be this film. Um, not, not likely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, I'd be, I would be surprised. That would be a surprising move, but... Um, but I think like there, there's a potency to this film that I think it will really speak to some people. And then I think for the people it doesn't speak to, it's a, it's a good window into maybe an experience that like hasn't been done that I've seen in quite this way. Yeah. That isn't focused on like navigating your twenties and thirties 
alone. Like, I feel like we've seen a lot of, like, friendship navigating of your 20s and 30s and, like, girls and sex in the city. And those are so rightly critiqued now. Um, but I don't know that I've seen this kind of film. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that that's, again, you know, and, and maybe it was just, like, kind of my own biased lens was that I think that that's what I was kind of expecting going into this movie was mm. a bit of a girl's sex in the city. It is not that. Not at all. No. Um, it's, it's much better than that. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with what you, with what you said. Like I'm still, I think I'm still kind of sitting with this movie. Like we just saw it last night. Like I think I'm still kind of processing it a little bit, but I would like to see it know. again. Yeah. Like I said, preferably at home. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I didn't get the full experience of it and like I liked it, but um, I kind of expected to be floored by it and then all these other things got in the way and I don't know that that's the film's fault. Yeah. I, I don't know that this would be the film that floors me just be, just because of all the other things I said, but um, how did it make you feel? It made me feel contemplative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, I'm still kind of digesting and reflecting on this movie a little bit. It also made me just reflect on my life and our life together mm -hmm. and the path that we've chosen to make together. Um, it makes me feel good in the, in the, in the, in the decisions we made and, you know, the path that we've made for, with each other and the life that we've built and continue to build. And that, you know, I think we're very fortunate and privileged that we've been able to do that. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of work, but it does. There's an effortlessness to what we have, and watching this movie made me grateful for that. Mm, that's really nice. It's true. It made me ungrateful for movie talkers. <laughs> Big time! My gosh. <laughs> yeah, I promise not to complain about movie theaters every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, if people were just m better <laughs> in movie theaters, wouldn't have to. Yeah, exactly. Okay that time it's that time, it's that time. okay we're, it's it's that time where we're going to talk about our nominees for bad dad of the week and rad dad of the week and i have a bonus daddy to oh, throw into the ring oh yeah. i don't so i'm excited to see who that is um i would like you to start with your bad dad because i did last week i there's like part of me that feels like we picked the same for both but like we'll see okay okay you start bad dad of the week nominee seth brundle Jeff Goldblum. Oh, from we, the yeah, fly. we do not have the same. Okay, okay, okay cool, cool, cool. Wow. Okay, I think that he is bad dad of the week because he's too into his work. <laughs> he doesn't listen to reason. You came with you came with notes. Yes, and he struggles to think outside of himself. Okay, okay, okay. I hear you. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to hear me? I'm ready to hear you. I'm ready to see you. Okay. Uh, my bad dad pick of the week is Harry Cooper from Night of the Living Dead. He was, he. I made a little like nominee list and he was, he was at the top. Yep. Okay. So my reasons would be, and I didn't come with notes. So this is off the top of my head. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter to me that he is a dad, but he is a dad. Mm-hmm. It's the way he speaks to everyone in that film. Like, he is the greatest gift in the world when he is, he's so selfish. Mm -hmm. He's so rude. And, like, his daughter is ill and he just keeps, a, like, being in other places. Um, 
but he just gives me such bad energy. Yeah. Like, so here's my, while trying to avoid spoilers, like, is it Seth Brundle that's a bad dad or is it who Seth Brundle becomes? I think it's set up from the outset that Seth Brundle is not going to be swayed by what anybody else thinks. Like, he's going to do his own thing and pave his own path no matter what. Like, he he's not, like, so I think it would be, because he's so focused on his work, how is he going to be my dad? Y- yes. So what's worse? Seth Brundle at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. seems like a lovely gent. Yeah. Like, seems like a kind-hearted person, little nerdy in a cute way, um, really invested in, in his baby, which is his work. I already feel like I'm going to lose this one. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, like, so what's worse, like, the the guy who doesn't have time for you but is a good guy? Or the guy that's there and is, like, a terrible every second of it? See, the thing is, is that Seth Brundle eventually gets to a very selfish place. But that's not his fault. Oh. Uh-huh. It's not his intention. Yeah. It's not his, it's not his true nature. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that is, a good, like, Harry Cooper's true nature. Dill hole. Is bad dad. Like, yeah. he is the embodiment embodiment of like somebody that i would be not speaking to on a regular basis if he was my father yeah and that like as i grew up i'd be like wow you messed me up in in like your views on the world and like i hate listening to you talk and like i don't like the way you treat mom or other people and like you suck yeah whereas like if seth brundle was my dad i'd be like I wish you'd spend more time with me. I wish you'd be less focused on your work because when I see you, you're great. Yeah. Yep. I think you win. Because, yeah. (laughs) Like, he was at the top of my list too. Harry Cooper? Yeah, him and and Brundle were were pretty neck and neck and I settled on Brundle, but... Was was Greg Kinnear on your shortlist? He was. Yeah, yeah. He's not a great dad. I feel like he's learning near the end but like still not great i didn't want to pick him exact for that reason that he does kind of you know come around yeah by the end of that story um okay great hit me with your rad dad of the week okay my rad dad of the week nominee is the character of miriam from turning red oh okay um so miriam is one of the main the protagonist uh what, what are they what's her nickname in the movie me May May? Do they call her May May? Or just May? Just May. I think that May May is like a term of endearment. Oh, okay. Um, so Miriam is one of May's close friends. And without like giving too much away, I just found that Miriam was like so supportive and had that like cheesy, corny dad energy of like when you're down, like I'm going to get you with this cheesy thing that like, and you're you're going to be groaning at how cheesy I'm being, but then eventually it turns you around um and and that was a like, consistent that like of the friend group miriam was the one who like was supportive and goofy and like who i think bolstered may the most <laughs> i was like i you know miriam i could i could go for that kind of dad energy in my life i was totally wrong i thought you were talking about the main character miriam's like the like hippy dippy one with the braces of. oh yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah sorry yeah no may is the main character yeah um, but that's a good pick, though, nonetheless. Not as good as my pick. Oh, okay. My nominee for Rad Dad of the Week 
is Ben, played by Dwayne Jones in Night of the Living Dead. Okay. He takes charge. I feel like he's willing to protect me and do what it takes to protect me. He checks in, makes sure that I'm that he makes sure that I'm okay and that the situation is looked after and he's no nonsense. He he doesn't beat around the bush. He gets things done. And I think he's also willing to listen to reason and listen to what others have to say while still being a leader of a group. So what about his like initial interactions with Barbara? Mm-hmm. Where does that fit into his rad dad energy? Because he's pretty just like, I don't know what the right word is for it, but like just wants her out of the way. I, I see. I didn't get that because I felt like he was just like, are you okay? And, you know, like we need to batten down the hatches. We need to lock up this house. And he, he checks in with her. That's true. At yeah. several points during that movie, making sure that, you know, she's still with it. She's okay. Even though she's in a state of shock um, from yeah, this situation going on. I guess that he, on. like, when he realizes that she can't be capable of helping, he doesn't push it. He's not. I mean, there's one thing he does that's, like, maybe not that great. Yeah. Again, 1968. <laughs> not yeah. great. Um, But... Okay, okay. Yeah, so I'm going to give you this one because while I think Miriam's a great pick, there's um, a conflict in the film where Miriam's dad energy totally deflates. Mm-hmm. And, like, I wouldn't want my dad to, like, r- react in that situation. And if we put Ben into that situation, I think it would be a different... I don't think Ben's going to do the corny support of, like, get you to sing a cheesy song when you're when you're down. But I agree with you that he's protective he's got a plan he's no nonsense and and like and at at his core cares about other people okay yeah yeah, i that means that our bad and rad dads are from the same movie well there you go great movie go check out night of the living dead yeah okay are you ready for my bonus daddy nominee i am i like i really don't know what it is unless it's also seth brundle no (laughs) close it's it's veronica gina d yeah totally from the fly you're so right (laughs) Yeah. She's just like, while both Jeff Goldblum and Gina D are total babes in the fly, Gina D is just always a win. And she does have like that daddy energy. Yeah. I yeah, I'm like, how did I not think of that myself? Um, you are so perfect. No oh, Yes. <laughs> yes, I win the inaugural bonus daddy. Yeah, I completely agree. That character. She's just like, even though she's dealing with some pretty shitty dudes throughout that movie, she has this confidence about her that just rocks. Yeah, and we didn't talk about um, the character of, I don't even know how to say his name, Stathis. The like other, Stathis, the like other dude, he sucked big time. Like, what are the, oh, yeah, like. He has one good function in this movie. And you need to watch it to find out yes, what it correct. is. <laughs> uh, I'm 100% with that. So Gina Davis' character, Veronica from The Fly, wins the inaugural Daddy Award. So you got a rat, any rad rec? Uh, let's do it again. You <laughs> you happen to have a rad wreck of the week, Elliot? I do. My rad wreck of the week is subtitles. 
Oh, yes. Um, we watch absolutely everything that we can with subtitles on. And in fact, sometimes if we can't have subtitles, we won't watch it. We'll be like, yeah, okay, maybe not. Yeah, subtitles, they help with everything. They help you remember character names, especially when we were watching Game of Thrones way back when. It just helped us keep track of all of that madness throughout the whole thing. But it also it also just helps you miss things that just get covered up in the sound mix or catch, you know, offhand comments or like there's been there's been a lot of movies that we've watched that we watched a lot when we were kids and never watched with subtitles and we watch them now as adults and there's lines that we've been think we've we thought we knew what the characters were saying mm-hmm. and they've been completely wrong from what we thought and subtitles revealed that to us. So we watch yeah, absolutely everything with subtitles and we recommend that all of you also take that like, on. Give it a try and see we've converted many a person to the subtitle world and it's hard to go to the theater like when we saw the witch in the theater i'm like i didn't hear a thing anybody said (laughs) (laughs) Um, so i love seeing a an international film or like a film that's doesn't even have to be an international film but a film that's not in english that that is subtitled because it's in another language i'm like yes i get to watch subtitles in the theater yeah and like when we use a streaming service or um rent something where the subtitles are piss poor. We'll we'll demand money back. We'll send yeah. angry emails, like because like for for us it's a preference, but for other folks that's the only way they can watch the movie, and that's unacceptable to me to have poor subtitling, um, especially if you're advertising that you have captioning. And I'll just shout out to like Prime has terrible subtitling, and Crave has terrible subtitling. Um, it lags or it's too early or it blips on and off the screen too fast. Um, Netflix has good subtitling. Disney Plus has good subtitling. Um, most movies that you buy will have good subtitling. But like, I think it's unacceptable to not have good subtitling. And I really appreciate when like YouTube shows have good subtitling and they invest mm-hmm. in that and it's not just auto caption. And for us, it's a preference. And so I really appreciate that as my preference. But like people should be thinking about doing it well also as an inclusive act absolutely i would i would be elated um if all movies in the theater were subtitled yeah um with so it. maybe we can convert enough people to it so that like that becomes the norm that would be yeah. so great because i remember when spider-man no way home came out we fell into a deep well of just watching reactions to some of the biggest moments in that movie on youtube and the shows that they had in paris the movie's in English, and it has English subtitles on it. That would have been amazing. I would be remiss to not point out that I went and saw Spider-Man No Way Home for the fifth time yesterday. Elliot, you did not join me. Mm. And uh, I know it's the third episode in a row mentioning him, but like Willem Dafoe. <laughs> be our dad. <laughs> Please. Um, and I got to say, I just, I really love that movie. I really love it. So sorry that you didn't get to come with me. But uh, okay. it was good for the fifth time. Great rad wreck. Uh, I fully support that. And it is one of the key aspects of how we watch movies and TV. And, and yeah, there's been like whole shows that we were planning on watching and the subtitling's bad on it. And we're like, okay, hey, well, I'm not going to invest in watching hours and hours of this show if it doesn't have good subtitling. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So that's my rad wreck of the week. All right, kids. That's going to do it for this episode. 
Um, if you'd like to follow us, we're on Instagram. You can check us out and engage with us at baddad.raddad. Also, you can get a sneaky peek at what we've watched on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Uh, our usernames are Elliot Cuss and Kylie Burton. Uh, spelling for those will be in the show notes. Uh, you can also drop us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. We would greatly appreciate that. But that's it. So thanks for joining us. And until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads have to be bad. Mm-hmm.